So let me recap last week's sermon. Last week's sermon on the resurrection and two weeks ago on knowledge, and we continue to use our reasoning caps for today's message. Two weeks ago, we learned about the hiddenness of God, that God doesn't show up in order to coerce his people because that would be unfair. Many would love him just for the fact that he is real, but not because they love his message or his character. And last week we spoke about the resurrection, how many atheist scholars are this close to believing in the resurrection. They may explain it, but they realize that Christ is real, that Christ died by, by crucifixion, and that the disciples saw him. How they saw him is what is different. And if some of you may or may not notice, if you go to our YouTube channel, for last week's message, we have a troll. He posted like maybe six or seven comments saying that there is no evidence for the resurrection. This afternoon, that's how I'm going to spend my Sabbath afternoon <laughs> replying to him. But today I want to talk to you about the hiddenness, not of God, but the hiddenness of the enemy. Yet I need to begin with an illustration that we used a couple of weeks ago. Remember when I talked to you about lawyers picking jurors, and they have to make sure that the, the jurors aren't going to be biased one way or another. Well, today I want to talk to you about the role of the judge in a jury. Sorry, the role of the judge in a courtroom. It's multifaceted and crucial for the administration of justice. And here are some key responsibilities of the judge. He's the adjudicator. The judge is responsible for ensuring that the trial is fair and impartial. They make decisions on legal matters, such as the admissibility of evidence and the application of laws to the facts of the case. They interpret the law. Judge interprets the law, applies the regulations, and make sure that things are going according to the law. They, they facilitate the proceedings. They oversee the proceedings in the courtroom, ensure that they are conducted in an orderly and efficient manner. This includes managing the interactions between the parties involved, such as the lawyers, defendants, and witnesses. Another role they have is the protector of rights. The judge protects the rights of all parties in the courtroom, including the accused, the victim, and the witnesses, including the defense lawyer and the accusing lawyer. So that being said, we know the role of the judge, but I want you to see this from the Bible. So open your Bibles with me to the book of Job, chapter 1. We're not going to look at the story of Job, but we're going to look at the fact that this is a courtroom drama in essence. Beginning in Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Now pay attention to what has happened. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around on it. 
The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land. Put, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now if you notice, there seems to be a sort of negotiation between God and the enemy. And if you notice that the sons are there, other people, representatives, is alluded to of other planets, Satan shows up because why? He's now the representative of this planet. And so God says, have you seen Job? And Satan says what? He only worships you because you bless him, because you protect him. But remove the protection and he will curse you to your face. So God then says, put some parameters, saying that you can take all his possessions, but you can't touch them. So right away you see in this courtroom proceedings that there are some limitations to what either of them can do. This happens again a second time. Just turn your Bibles to verse 1 in chapter 2. Then again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Said to, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without a cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man he all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Now, in the second stage of this argument, it gets a little deeper. The enemy is given permission by the courtroom setting, not only, judge, not only God, so he can touch the life of Job. But there are parameters that are implied. One is that God can't show up and be besides Job in order to comfort Job. Job has to experience this hardship on his own. Another thing that is implied is that Satan can't show up himself because Satan wouldn't want to show up himself and say, look, it's me causing this, therefore incentivizing Job to remain faithful to God. Both of them, both God and Satan, had to remain hidden from what Job was going through. Here's what we see that are parameters, other parameters, in which both God and Satan aren't allowed to cross. Satan can't hurt, hurt Job the first time, and the second time around, he can't kill him. Parameters are set. Second parameter that we saw is that God can't lavish Job with blessings, nor interfere with Satan's game plan 
for the specified amount of time that isn't mentioned, but we know has to be agreed upon because the story eventually concludes. Just like God cannot coerce us to follow him by showing up, neither can the enemy do so either to a certain extent. One, it doesn't behoove Satan to show up and say, here I am. Because if Satan shows up in your life and says, here I am, you are eventually going to run to God to get away from Satan. But are you running to God because you love God and his character, or are you afraid of the enemy? However, another reason that Satan doesn't show up is if he did, the majority would, oh sorry, if he did, yeah, the majority would run from him, but would they run to God out of love or fear of the enemy? We don't know, but it would be tampering with the witness. Another thing you cannot do in the court. At the very least, what is tampering? Tampering with a witness, listen, in a courtroom setting, refers to the act of improperly influencing, coercing, bribing, or intimidating a witness with the intention of altering or preventing their testimony in a legal proceeding. And at some point, you and I are going to testify on behalf of the character of God to the whole world, but right now, as you live your life, you are being a witness that God is faithful and loving. This can include persuading a witness to lie, withhold information, or not appear in court. Such actions are illegal and can significantly undermine the integrity of the judicial process. So let me ask you this question. Do you think Satan always abides by the rules of the court? I doubt it. There are several times in Scripture when the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuked thee, it's actually Jesus saying, objection in the court, right? The Lord rebuked thee. So Satan doesn't always abide. And one of the reasons Satan is hidden is, look at this quote. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that what? He, does, he didn't exist. Many people have this notion that this being cannot exist. As a matter of fact, speaking to several atheists, Glenn included, they don't buy the Satan hypothesis for the reason that there is evil in this world. Sister White had a similar quote. She says, it is because he has masked himself with consummate skill that the question is widely asked, does such a being really exist? Right? So this is a notion about the, of the hiddenness of the enemy. The other lie goes with the first is that all bad things that happen are an act of God. We see this in society today. What isn't so detrimental because they use it in a more generic sense. Common examples of acts of God include earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, and storms. And the reason they mention them as act of God is because the insurance doesn't want to pay your pay. Right? The insurance tries to get away from paying. But one other thing that is blamed on God that it is more serious that you and I as Christians have to confront is why is there evil in the world? 
Why do innocent kids die in war? Why are there innocent kids with terminal diseases? The common question. And they ask, why does God allow this? Why does God not intervene? Why does God not do something about it? Instead of blaming the enemy. As a matter of fact, when they asked Jesus in a parable directly, Jesus took no responsibility for evil in the world, and he said these words, and he said to them, an enemy has done this, when he was talking about the tares growing with the wheat. So God takes no responsibility for the evil in this world, an enemy has done this. Ironically, is that the accusations Satan has leveled on God in the story of Job are weapons he uses himself to seduce men and women to distort the image of God in humanity. Remember what he accused God, that you just bless Job and that's the reason he follows you. Well, he accused God of that because that's exactly what he likes to use in earth today to have people follow him. And we'll see examples of this. The first accusation was that God blessed and put a hedge around Job, and this is why Job worships. Yet it is Satan that does that in order to gain the allegiance of men and women. Here are a few examples. In the story of Adam and Eve, he promised or offered them wisdom, godlike status, moral autonomy, challenge to God's truthfulness, and in an independence from God. He offered them something more in their eyes than God himself was offering. So he was using his supposed power to bribe them to come to his side. The very thing he accuses God of doing with Job. Then there's the story of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God and yet he was enticed with riches and money and notoriety in order to curse the people of God. So much so that 2 Peter 2.15 says that he forsaken the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Bela, Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received their rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. But the enemy loves to entice us with bright lights, big city, fame, fortune. Aiken's greed. He saw that the, 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 the treasure that he could steal, he thought it was going to make him prosperous. But he condemned part of his own people. There's Gehazi. Remember the servant of Elijah? Who, when Elijah didn't want to receive the money from Naaman, or the treasure from Naaman, he ran after Naaman and said, no, no, give me the money. And he ended up being uh, full of leprosy. He tried this with Jesus himself. Remember in the wilderness, he said he tempted him three times. And he tempted him over physical needs. Turn this bread, in, this stone into bread. Took him to the temple and says, I will give you the kingdom of this world if you would just bow down and worship. He tempted him with physical needs, with power and glory, and he tested him to test God by throwing himself off the temple. And the enemy tempts us the same way. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is, it, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Every temptation you have to deal with comes to us through our senses. A married man looks at a woman that is not his wife. His senses are aroused. A woman looks at a powerful man that's more powerful than her husband. And the senses and the imagination are aroused. A person sees a lot of money not being occupied or tended to. The temptation arises. We are drawn to sin by our senses, which is why God deals with us with our mind. Which is why he appeals us to reason, but in the end, reason has to bow down to the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23. Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. The temptation, think about it, was to take the riches and power of Egypt and use that to save God's people, but God had other plans. If Elon Musk offered you all his money, but you had to forego your Christianity. Would you do it? Right? Moses was offered not only riches, but unlimited pleasure and unlimited power. He was offered exactly the opposite that Joseph got. Joseph did get all the power. Joseph did have all the money. To use as his disposal. But your story and my story may be different. And Moses' story was surely different. The question is, will we trust God's plan or do it our way? Will we trust God's plan and in doing it our way, we're trusting the enemy's hidden plan? I've discussed this in the past, how we see the enemy's influence in the music industry and in Hollywood. It's too obvious to mistake or deny now. Musicians, think about it, sing things that go contrary to God, yet in award shows, they thank God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 and 18. Acts chapter 16 and we see a similar thing that's happening in Acts that those in the entertainment industry do as well. Acts chapter 16 
verses 16 through 18. This young lady, who was a divining spirit, was following the apostles. And listen to what she was saying. What she was saying was truth. But look how Paul reacted. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Is there anything in what she said that it is untruthful? And the answer is no. She was actually preaching the truth. But Paul, in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Why would Paul do that? Because your profession must match the life that you're living. She was professing and preaching something truthful, but her life was living contrary to that which she professed. And so these music stars and Hollywood stars, when they profess to thank God and give Him all the glory, their music and their movies undermine the message and the truthfulness of what they're proclaiming. We see it in athletes and political leaders. We see it in pastors as well. And in, in politics, we see it in the government building of Iowa, or I think it's Ohio, they have a statue to Satan for the holiday season. He's hidden in plain sight. What about in the sciences? Listen to this. Research and development, this is based on 2021, so two years ago. Research and development spending by academic institutions totaled $89.9 billion in 2021. Most of this is grant money that they receive from government agencies and millionaires and billionaires. $89.9 billion. I'd be happy with the $0.9 billion for the church. Now, look at this quote. But a recent survey published in leading science journal, Nature, conclusively showed that the National Academy of Science is anti-God to the core. A survey of all 517 members in bio biological and physical sciences resulted in just over half responding. 72 were overtly atheistic, 20 agnostic, and only 7 believed in a personal God. This is one of the highest prestigious places you can be, and you cannot apply for it. You have to be invited in. And look how they deny the God of Scripture. If they were unbiased, like Christians should be, we learn both sides, but we realize God's way is the best. 
they would allow more creationists in, creationist scientists. That is how you end up with quotes, right? This society and this denial of God is how you end up with quotes like this. Now, this quote's pretty long, but pay attention to the absurdity of the quote from one of the supposedly smartest, highest IQ scientists that ever lived. The role played by time at the beginning of the universe is, I believe, the final key to removing the need for grand design and revealing how the universe created itself. Anybody ever baked something that baked itself? <laughs> time itself must come to a stop. You can't get to a time before the Big Bang because there was no time before the Big Bang. We have finally found something that does not have a cause because there was no time for a cause to exist in. For me, this means there is no possibility of a creator because there is no time for a creator to have existed. Since time itself began at the moment of the Big Bang, it was an event that could not have been caused or created by anyone or anything. So when people ask me if a God created the universe, I tell them the question itself makes no sense. Time didn't exist before the Big Bang, so there is no time for God to make the universe in. It's like asking for directions to the edge of the earth. The earth is a, is a sphere. It does not have an edge, so looking for it is a futile exercise. By implication of this quote, you have me believe that nothing created everything. He, he says that time had a beginning, and there was nothing before time, yet everything that we see and touch and feel started out of nothing. All of this just to hide the fact that in everything you see, there is design behind it. There is nothing you see, nothing you interact that doesn't have design behind it. But they want to do away with God. Listen to this other quote. In addition to the theory of evolution, meaning the idea of descent with modification, one may also speak of the fact of evolution. This is how they state it. The National Academy of Science, NAS, defines a fact as an observation that has been repeatedly confirmed. Focus on the word observation. That has been repeatedly confirmed and for all practical purpose is accepted as true. The fossil record and abundant other evidence testify that organisms have evolved through time. I didn't make the rest of this up. Although no one observed those transformations, the indirect evidence is clear, unambiguous, and compelling. So wait a minute, the definition of a fact is an observation that has been repeatedly confirmed and for all practical purposes is accepted as true. Yet they themselves say, although no one has observed those transformations. It takes bigger faith to believe in this than to believe in God. Their denial of God is evidence for me that God is real.
Here's why. They go out of their way to the point of sounding illogical to prove their point. This is the sad world of atheism. There are three quotes on this one slide. But pay attention mainly to the first one. But we'll read all three. Think about the Christmas season and how much you enjoy it. The rapture you get. Even atheists say they get a, a good, you know, holiday feeling from this. Think of the things you like. Holding a newborn baby or eating food that you find delicious. But here's the sad world of atheists. You. You. Your joys, your sorrows, your memories, and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behaviors of a vast assembly of nerve cells and the associated molecules. You're not free. You don't feel what you feel. You are just, like Stephen Hawkins say, dancing to your DNA. You are a slave to your DNA. Here's a more modern atheist, Sam Harris. My choices matter. And there are paths. He's trying to reconcile this absurdity. My choices matter, and there are paths towards making wiser ones. But I cannot choose what I choose. And if it ever appears that I do, for instance, after going back between two options, I do not choose to choose what I choose. There is a regress here that always ends in darkness. I think I'm choosing what I'm choosing, but in the end, I'm not choosing what I'm choosing. It's just happening. It's a sad world of atheism. We are survival machines, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes, Richard Dawkins. You have no free will. You don't worship. You don't like your husband. You don't like your children. You just think you do. The absurdity to which they go to deny the Spirit of God in us should give us clues that God's way is the best way. Hawkins said this Religion, a fairy tale for the people afraid of the dark. And John Lennox replied, Atheist, a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. As I was analyzing this quote, I thought to myself, He couldn't help us, he couldn't help himself by appealing to his definition to the dark. Because that's what it is. It's darkness inside the soul. There is no peace without God. They may look like the clown with a smiling face, but there's sadness inside. Why did he appeal to dark when he could have appealed to light? And I love John Lennox's response. A fairy to atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. Why do I like it? Because Jesus himself said this. Oops, jump in. Jesus said this. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Let me go back to that slide that I jumped ahead of. 
the enemy will never show up to you as the enemy of your soul. He will never show up to you like they show them in movies, right? Red horns and and red costume and none of that. He's going to try to seduce you with whatever lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life that he may find a wedge in your life. He will bless you with riches if that's what it takes. He will bless you with poverty if he thinks that's what it'll take for you to abandon God. Whatever he can do to get you from God, including the fact that the Bible tells us that no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Not darkness, but an angel of light. And John chapter 3 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, who didn't come looking handsome, who didn't come looking rich, who didn't come looking powerful to bribe people with a kingdom where all the believers would be living in luxury. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So both of them are hidden. The hiddenness of God and the hiddenness of the enemy. But their evidence is obvious all around us in the world. You will either follow the absurdity of these scientists and movie stars, or you will follow the humbleness and the teachings and the ethical teachings of Christ. The choice is right before us. And we don't have to see the main characters, God and Satan, like Job didn't see the main character, but their teachings are right around us. There are only two choices. Either there is a God, whether he's a Christian God or anything, there, either there is a God or there isn't. When you look at society today, it is crumbling in just the opposite manner of the teachings of Jesus Christ. So here is my appeal to you. It's right before us. Light and darkness. Truth and error. Free will or robots. Good or evil. I choose love. And love comes from God. The scientist says there is no God. And if there is no God, there is no love. That what you think you feel as love is just your biology, your genes playing you like a puppet. I believe there is love. I see it in my relationship with my wife. 
I see it in my relationship with my girls. And I see it more clearly in the fact that the Christmas story, whether it happened on December 25th or not, happened. It's true. And he died for me and for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your amazing love. Father, it is us to decide. Will we serve you? Will we go after the light? Or will we remain in darkness? The evidence for both sides is clearly all around us. If we look with open eyes and open hearts. Father, you don't hide the evidence of both sides from us. The enemy tries to hide the evidence for you. But Father, may you give us discernment. And may each and every one of us choose life today. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.